secrets of success. What's up, everybody? This is Russell. Welcome back to the Members Only Podcast here at Secrets of Success. Um, all right, this episode is one that's going to be really fun. So some of you guys know, behind the scenes, uh, I've been acquiring all these books and these courses and everything, and uh, we're building a, I keep calling it a library. It's probably closer to a museum, a museum and an event center to be able to display all this stuff. And um, initially, when we first launched it, we had a, a, um, the opportunity for people, if they wanted to buy a seat inside of the, the library, where they could be here for all the events and stuff like that. And so we sold most of them. We probably have a few extra, actually. Um, in fact, I think if you go to secretsofsuccess.com slash atlas, I believe, secretsofsuccess.com slash atlas, you can go and see if there's any seats left. But, um, but people could buy a seat to be in all the events that are happening here inside of this room. It was not inexpensive. Um, seats you know, started at the high end at a million dollars a seat. Um, and there's a couple, you know, lower tiers, but for the most part, you know, it was, it was a very small group of people who were able to invest in these seats. Uh, and so we did a really cool groundbreaking ceremony where all these people flew to Boise, Idaho. We broke ground together. We like got prepared to build this event center, this museum. And then that night we had a, a really cool, you know, kind of just a, an event to talk about these old books and stuff like that. And I had one of my friends and one of my very first mentors, uh, his name is Joe Vitale. He came to Boise and he spoke and he gave a really cool presentation. It was called The 13 Startling Lessons from My First 70 Years with Books. And uh, Joe is a book junkie like me. In fact, uh, I purchased most of his library. I purchased, I don't even know, probably five or 6,000 books from him to have into, into this library over here. Um, but I had him come in because he's someone who's like me, reads all these books and falls in love with the authors and who they are and what and the, the insights he got from them. And so he did this really cool presentation going through different books and lessons he learned. And um, it was really cool for two reasons. Number one is like you get him to kind of like curate all these books. And like here's the idea, like here's the best thing. And then number two, um, a lot of these books, like most of us had never heard of them. Um, and a lot of them I've purchased. A lot of them are being digitalized. A lot of them will be in the members area. So a lot of them you'll have access to. Some of you may not. You might want to go find some of these. And so, uh, but anyway, just it's, it's, a, it's a cool way to get you excited about these old books, how they can benefit you, some of the, the insights and the ideas from them. It'll give you guys some, some motivation on some of, these, uh, some of these authors and like why you might want to read some of their, their books here inside the members area. Um, and then uh, for some of you guys, will help you go want to go treasure hunt to go find some of the other authors in these books. And so uh, only thing I ask is don't get into bidding or worth me at eBay for any of these books or these authors because, you know, you know, <laughs> anyway, so this is a presentation from Joe Vitale uh, at the groundbreaking ceremony here for the Secrets of Success Library, also called the Atlas Research Center. You maybe hear me call it different things. Uh, we're still finalizing the final names, but it was a really cool presentation he did out here uh, talking about his life uh, over the last 70 years with books and some of the lessons he gained from these books. I hope you enjoy this presentation from Dr. Joe Vitale. Thank you for coming. Thank you for allowing me to speak for a little bit. Uh, Russell had asked me to speak about books, no surprise, and he wanted to know the life lessons from books on marketing and books on life, and it was an overwhelming task. I ended up coming up with 13 what I called startling lessons from my first 70 years with books. Does anybody know where that title comes from? I want to find out how well read you are. My First 70 Years with Books. There's a famous advertising book called My First 70 Years in Advertising, Maxwell Sackheim. I borrowed it. I was inspired by it. It's one of the things that happens when you read books. I went on. I'm not used to doing this. Okay. I've written 90 books, as he's pointed out. I have more books that I'm writing right now. Uh, on the plane, I'll write another one. I've recorded 15 albums. I've got 200 products. I've got all kind of courses. I've been online at MrFire.com since 95, 98. And a lot of what I've done has been influenced by all the books I've read. And I want to share the books you may not know. You know Napoleon Hill. You probably know Dale Carnegie. You probably know Maxwell Smart, uh, Maltz. You probably know some of the big names in the book, Self-Improvement Industry. I want to tell you about the ones you don't know. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, I cannot remember the books I've read any more than the meals I have eaten. Even so, they have made me. I've always loved that quote because it's referring to when you read a book and you have one of mine on your desk in front of you, a gift from Russell, it'll stick with you even when you unconsciously don't remember it. 
When you consciously don't remember it, it's in your subconscious mind. The problem I had is that Russell asked me to put this presentation together after he took all my books. <laughs> it was like he already shredded all the boxes. He's ecstatic, orgasmic. He's got all my books. And then he says, hey, will you do a presentation about all the books that influenced you? And it's like, you got them. But I took on the challenge. I took on the challenge. And this is one of the first books, Fundamentals of Prosperity, came out in 1920. Anybody know it? Anybody know who Roger Babson was? He was a fortune teller for Wall Street. He actually predicted the falling of the stock market in 1929. He profited by teaching people how to profit. And one of the things I never forgot from that book is something he said is that, and Russell does this, you have to put, I'm going to say God, spirit, service, faith, kindness, first in business. And Babson had given this example that I never forgot. He said when people went to South America, a country that was struggling and poor, they went in search of gold. When people went to North America, which prospered, they went in search of God. I get chills when I think about this. This is a basic lesson in business that virtually nobody knows because they're all ego-driven. I interviewed Russell for my TV show, Zero Limits Living, and I never forgot that he said family was first, and business lagged behind as a game. And I loved it because even I get into the desperate mode of wanting business to work and overlooking what actually needs to be first. So one of the very first lessons that I got, and it's from a 1920 book, was put God first. I heard, I heard an amen. Hallelujah, everybody. <laughs> All right. These two books influenced me profoundly. I was a marketer and a copywriter and all of that ever bef long before I ever went into the movie The Secret and went, moved into a self-help, spiritual kind of uh, category. <clears throat> and the author who really taught me was Walter Dill Scott. You don't know him today. He was one of the early psychologists who talked about using psychology in business. And I want to read this line. I have to walk over here to do it. <clears throat> Every idea of a function tends to call that function into activity and will do so unless hindered by a competing idea or physical impediment. impediment. Do you know what that means? My life work is based on that sentence. My life work in business, in copywriting, is based on that sentence. My life work in self-improvement, in self-help, in coaching and helping people achieve their goals is based on that sentence. Anybody think they know what that means? Nobody? <laughs> it's okay. It's a mouthful, and he wrote two books to help explain it. Basically, right now, you know about the conscious mind. You know about the subconscious mind slash the unconscious mind. If you know more, you know about the collective unconscious. Whenever something is given to you as a directive, as a suggestion, it hits the database of beliefs in your mind. Now, you might think, oh, so what? If you're trying to sell something to somebody and you say, buy my bottle of water, why won't they? It is hitting all of their beliefs about bottled water. And unless you handle those beliefs, they won't buy. By the same token, if you do handle those beliefs, sale done. In the self-improvement area, this is profound. This is what I think is the missing secret, and I don't know that anybody else is talking about it out there. Yet, there it was as a hint in 1903. And that's the idea that when you say you state a goal, 
You state a goal consciously. And that goal will happen if you don't have a subconscious counter-intention. This insight, which I have written about, which I have taught, which I have recorded on various places at various times, all came from Walter Dill Scott. I'm pointing to this screen, but I know there's one there. There's one here. So that's one of the big insights. And so lesson two is people agree if there's no thought blocking the request. People agree when there's no secondary belief. When there are secondary beliefs, your job as a marketer, as a copywriter, is to handle them. Another word would be handle the objections. But it's the same thing when you're going for a goal. You have blocks to your own goals. Once you take care of those blocks, you can achieve your goals. This is one of the insights. That's only number two <laughs> from a lifetime. This could go on forever. Uh, the first hundred million. How many know what that is? Oh, this is good. Russell, they don't know. They don't know. <laughs> it's all new to them. Oh, my God. This, the first hundred million, this was written in 1920-something. I think it says 1928. This was a guy who published five-cent blue books, little booklets. And they were little booklets that were condensed Shakespeare and condensed stories and condensed articles and uh, condensed papers. And what he experimented with were the titles. By changing one word in a title, he could get phenomenal sales. By changing a title with a different word, he can wipe out and get no sales. So I learned about the value of testing. And one of the other people who did testing was Elmer Wheeler. How many people know Elmer Wheeler? One or two. He's the guy who said, sell the sizzle, not the steak. I went crazy collecting Elmer Wheeler, which I no longer have now. It's all with Russell's... Atlas Museum, the one you guys are all building for the future, for the legacy, for the world. It's amazing what you're doing. But Elmer Wheeler did tested sentences that sell. And that book talked about sentences that would sell. Same thing with John Caples. Ah, tested advertising methods. John Caples, that book changed my life as a copywriter. He worked for BBDO. Batten, Marston, Durston, and Osborne. You don't know who these people are, do you? <laughs> it's just cool that you don't. But, you know, this is, i got to stop right here. This is the reason you need the museum. This is the reason. Do you know we wake up and we go through our lives, and most of us are struggling, most of us are guessing, most of us are arm wrestling with what is presented in front of us, and we don't have a freaking clue that there are people who went before us who answered all of our challenges. You can save your blood, sweat, and tears by reading how they lost their blood, sweat, and tears. This is phenomenal, and we have to keep this alive because I'll give you an example. Lisa and I take our pet to a uh, pet-sitting place, and the lady there was pregnant. And I asked how she was feeling, and she was scared. And I said, why are you scared? My first baby, I've never given birth. And I said, you ever been to a library? You ever been to a bookstore? She didn't, didn't know where I was going. And I said, you're not the first woman to give birth on the planet. It's been done before. And they left the paper trail. They left stories, books, but we have, to, we have to read this material and then we have to keep it alive for the future generations. Otherwise, it will die. It will die and we will be bumbling through life, constantly reinventing the will our way. This is why these books so fascinate me. I showed this copy to Russell when we had the private tour yesterday, and I said that was the book that influenced me the most as a copywriter. 
and as an author. When you read my Barnum book that's in front of you, you'll notice that it's written in a copywriting style. I learned how to write in an engaging way from these guys who went before us, like John Caples. And that's kind of a side insight to what we're talking about here because the main point I wanted to put across is that testing is what you need to do. Some of you know that in marketing. You probably know it in ClickFunnels, but, and I think Russell said that in the interview I did with him where he said he almost wants things to fail right away because he gets in, input and he can adjust in that moment. That's the third lesson. That book right there, that's the autobiography of P.T. Barnum. Changed my life. One of the reasons it changed my life is that I learned how much publicity that he did. And I told Russell, I said that publicity is probably the overlooked marketing tool and secret that all of you have. How many are doing publicity? <laughs> Nobody? There one, two and a half hands went up. Uh, I'm telling you, this is genius. This is the overlook. A lot of what you see in the media was planted there by people who wanted you to see it. They were selling something. They were promoting something. Ugh, so many stories I can tell you about this. Let's go through because I want to point out there were a lot of people like Tale of the Blue Horse and Million Dollar Adventures. Stanley Arnold was a business publicist. He promoted businesses with wild things like a blue horse. A horse they actually painted blue. I don't know that they would do that today. But back then they did. Showmanship in Business by Kenneth Good. That one changed my life because he kept talking about you have to get attention for your business. Online or off, you still have to bring attention to your business. How are you going to do it? P.T. Barnum had a jumbo the elephant how many saw My Mermaid that is now at the museum? <laughs> I used that mermaid for 20 years. I would be on stages like this, and I would talk about P.T. Barnum in particular, and then I would, particular, and I would talk about uh, he had a mermaid. Well, I found a mermaid. I have a mermaid. And I'd say, if you want to see the mermaid, it's back there in the back of the room. And that's where I'll be with all of my books for sale. <laughs> Everybody, ha who doesn't want to see a mermaid? <laughs> Even though ultimately, to confess, they were always disappointed. <laughs> if you saw it, you know they were disappointed. <laughs> but I got him to the back of the room anyway. <laughs> and biography of an idea, Edward L. Bernays invented public relations. He lived to be 101 years old. I remembered this story as I was putting this PowerPoint together, this slideshow for you. And when I was a kid, and this is probably in the 1960s, there was an ivory soap contest. And they were asking all the kids, and the schools got behind this, to go buy ivory soap, go home, and carve it into some sort of figure, an animal or something. And then you would bring it back at the school, there'd be a judging contest and everything. And I did it. We bought bars of ivory soap. We were not wealthy, but we went and bought more soap in order to be in this contest. It wasn't until I read Biography of an Idea that I realized it was a publicity contest stunt. Edward Bernays created it to sell more ivory soap. And when I read that, I was like, oh, I'm an idiot, and that's genius. <laughs> Instead of just telling us to wash more and use ivory soap, it's like, no, go buy some and carve it up. <laughs> then you'll throw it away. <laughs> you won't even use it. So one of the biggest takeaways in what I call lesson four is this idea that attention comes first. You know, when I was in Houston and I was just coming, I was homeless in Dallas. I was in poverty most of Houston times in the early 10 years or so. And I had my first book in 1984. And it came and went, it bombed, and that's when I had to learn marketing. And I was telling Russell this whole story yesterday. I had to learn copywriting, and I had to learn how to get on stages, which I hated. And it's still difficult for me to do. I'm more, you know, Russell said yesterday I was the brother he never had. 
because we have so much in common, including, you know, we're more of an introvert kind of a thing. But I found that if I wanted to get business and sell my book, I had to get on stages. I would go to networking groups, business lunches, breakfasts, and clubs, and rotary this and that, and sit out there like everybody else. Nobody noticed me. I was handing out a business card just as they were handing out business cards to me. I had to get attention. One way to get attention was to stand on stage, which is where, in many ways, it started to uh, turbocharge for me. So the fourth lesson is attention comes first. The Robert, letter, Robert Collier letter book. Robert Collier was a metaphysical writer that I read in the 60s and 70s. Uh, the Secret of the Ages and a bunch of other things, prayer works, uh, and I can't remember all of them. And I didn't know he was a copywriter. And when I discovered the book, I was still broke, I think still unpublished. That book changed my life. It changed my life because I found out he was a storyteller. And the stories would sell. Most of what I've been doing when I stand up here and tell you all these things is tell you a story. One of the things Russell and I agreed on as a true prized possession is Robert Collier came out with a magazine during the Great Depression called Mind, Inc. I did my best for years to collect as many as I could, and then they're, they're all here now. You might have seen some of them. And one of the reasons I love them is that you open any one of them, and there's a story. And the story's so good, you can't help but continue reading it. As you continue reading it, he asks you to do something, or buy something, or go somewhere. Stories. He wrote, The Secret of the Ages is probably what most of you might know, if you know it all. And The Great Brain Robbery, that was another book that influenced me because it was the stories. I was interviewed on a webinar fairly recently, and they asked me how I've learned to think like an entrepreneur. How have I learned to come up with ideas? And I'm, some say I'm a product creation machine. I just give me a subject or an idea, and I can pretty much do it. And pretty quickly, I learned how to think like an entrepreneur from reading stories like the ones in The Great Brain Robbery of people who did financially successful, entrepreneurial, and unusual things. By training my mind, my mind at this point, I could almost not turn it off. The thoughts are there, the ideas are there, the connections are there, the stories are there. <clears throat> Anybody here know Est? Yeah, a couple of you. Est was the most popular and controversial self-improvement seminar in the 1970s. And so this is not as dated as some of the books we've been talking about, but at the same time, I, bet, I venture you haven't read it. And this is one of the best written stories ever because it is about the Est seminar experience, but written in a fictionalized way. It makes you feel like you are there, in the Est experience, in the room. I loved it so much, I read it when I was broke, read it several times, bought every copy I could find. Years go by, and as I get some success and everything, I end up meeting the author. I find out his book's out of print. A few more years go by, and I end up publishing it. I brought it back to print. He's since passed on, but this is another example of a book so riveting because of how it was written. Anybody read The Man Nobody Knows? The Man Nobody Knows was a 1925 classic written by Bruce Barton, who was a BBDO founder, one of the largest advertising agencies in the world. And <clears throat> The Man Nobody Knows is about Jesus as a businessman. The book's still in print. That's how good it is. And what is it based on? Stories. The whole point of these particular books that I'm showing you is that stories are what is making the difference. My voice will go with you. I bought it in 1980. 
the copy that I had and I had signed is now in Russell's possession here with all of you. And that was all about stories to the subconscious mind. The other stories we were talking about all were to the conscious mind. This one is to the subconscious mind. And the whole point of these is that the stories motivate, inspire, persuade, influence, and sell. Maybe you knew that. 1928, Brainology. Russell and I have agreed. That was one of the best titles ever. Brainology. Who heard of Elsie Lincoln Benedict before I or Russell might have told you? I'm in love with her. I'm in love with her. You're talking about the 1920s. This woman was bigger than Napoleon Hill, Dale Carnegie, or any of these self-help greats that you would mention. And she was there seeing people in person and through newspapers without radio, television, or all the bells and whistles we take for granted. She did a course on mental analysis. She was a fireball of a speaker. She wrote a book called Practical Psychology. I mean, this, this woman was amazing. She came out with her own course, How to Get Anything You Want. All of this is in the museum here now and will be in the, the big one. And this is the woman who pointed out something that, as I was telling Russell yesterday, I've never heard anybody else say, including modern psychologists today, have not said this. She claimed everyone has a subconscious prime directive, a key thought that is operating your life. And everything you do and all your decisions are around the main prime directive. And it's not just survival. That's a prime directive for all of us. But there's another one, personality-oriented. And she invited you to go within yourself and to reflect, to find out what it is for you. You could change it if you didn't like it. I will tell you that for me, for the longest time, I thought my subconscious prime directive was to struggle and be broke in order to, after my death, be successful as an author. And so all decisions, the decisions you're making, you think you're making them consciously, you're making them subconsciously. Modern science is proving that. And so you make the decision, and you think it's in your best interest, and you find out later, oh, maybe that was the wrong one, or it didn't work. You're making it because it serves your subconscious prime directive. It is a key point, and that's one of the reasons that I'm doing this presentation in a way to feed you wisdom. This is a key point of wisdom. I'm clearly acknowledging Elsie Lincoln Benedict, but at the same time, I'm clearly wanting to help all of us here. So now we look at 1899, and there was a whole world of books that started coming out. This one, The Conquest of Poverty, that are thought-related. She's not talking about the conquest of poverty as investing in the banks or the real estate or something. She's talking about how you're thinking, in 1899, she wasn't the only one. The Mental Equivalent is one of my favorite little booklets, Emmett Fox. And he's talking about if there's something you want, you can do this right now. If there's something you want to have, do, or be in your life, and it's out there as a goal, and it's a vision, what you can do is create the mental equivalent of it right now that is a fully embodied image inside your mind that is so real, it feels real. And as much as you can visit that mental equivalent, the faster you will actually manifest it in outer reality. There's a whole world of people, dollars want me. <laughs> 1903. This is the beginning of the self-talk movement. Most of you probably heard about Emile Coulet with every day and every way I'm getting better and better. He was a pharmacist who found out that if you were self-talking in a positive way, 
that you could actually get better, you didn't need the pharmacy. This was a runner-up, 1902, Dollars Want Me. And the one book, I'm sure all of you know this book, because the movie The Secret was inspired by this book, Financial Success Through Creative Thought. That came out in 1910. The Science of Getting Rich was another title for it. Rhonda Byrne, who filmed the movie The Secret, said it was this book that inspired her and saved her. And one of the things I circled in this particular graph is the comment he made that everything you want is going to come through natural means. The mistake a lot of people make when they get into self-help or self-development or they watch The Secret or read even some of my books, they suddenly feel they're in a magical world. Do the mental equivalent, do your affirmations, click your heels together, and it shows up at the door. Usually doesn't. Usually what you want is a co-creation. You have to meet it part way. And when he said it comes through natural means, my translation is, and I'm sure all of you know this, it comes through other people. It comes through other people. This is why relationships are so important. This is actually one of the keys to explaining Russell's colossal success. He takes care of relationships. He takes care of people. He takes care of you. He takes care of me. And he has bestowed riches as a result. How many of you have seen The Secret? Got better odds. See, Russell, I told you, if you turn it into a movie, everybody will go watch a movie. The <laughs> same with consciously creating circumstances. That's always been one of my favorite titles. It's like, what a cool title. Consciously creating circumstances. This is all in that field of mental influence and controlling things through your mind. And so lesson seven is all about your mind, your thought creates. You may have known that, but did you know all the little subcategories of books that help bring it into the world today? I know you read Pollyanna or you saw the movie Pollyanna. Right? This book's in a category all by itself. This book is a masterpiece. This book came out in 1913. I've seen the movies just like everybody else. The movies are all the way back to Mary Pickford in the silent days to Haley Mills, and they've still made some recent ones. And so Pollyanna was so good, I went back and reread the book fairly recently. I was in awe. It's alive. Her descriptions of characters and actions are as if you are watching a movie in print form. I'm dazzled with how well it's written. But the message, the message, people make fun of her by saying, don't be a Pollyanna, don't put your head in the sand, don't dismiss the things that are challenges. That's not what she said. That's not what the author meant. That's not what any of the movies convey. She looked at harsh reality And searched for the good in it. She played the glad game. And interesting, another side note, interesting that that book came out in 1913. At the same time, there was a book called The Glad Game by Christian Larson that came out around 1910. And Orison Sweat Martin, our buddy, who was with Success Magazine and did so many other books, he had a book on being glad. They all came out about the same time period. And you can't help but wonder. I mean, the skeptical mind or critical mind goes, they all stole from each other, which I don't think it, you know, there's no internet. They're not doing it that way back then. They didn't have instant access. But did they all receive the same idea from a higher power? I love that Napoleon Hill calls that higher power infinite intelligence. I think it's one way he sidestepped the whole, oh, well, it's God. No, it's not really God. It's infinite intelligence. Well, it's kind of a code word. It's a code phrase. And you can't help but wonder, do ideas seem to all arrive about the same time, almost like some force is saying, we want this to be created. And if you're the one receiving the idea, and Stuart, or, uh, Russell uses the name uh, stewards, be a good steward of the idea, which I love, then you can bring it into being and you can profit from it. That's a side note. But this book, 
Lesson eight, perception is a choice. Life is an optical illusion. You'll hear me go on radio shows, TV shows, webinars, in movies, and I'll say life is an optical illusion. It is a grand optical illusion. If you think it is dark, gloomy, scarcity, competitive, you can go find evidence for that. People writing books, scientists doing studies. If you believe the world is bountiful and abundant and beautiful, you can find evidence for that and books on that and scientists who support that. Which one's real? They're both real. It's up to you which one you choose to see. So Pollyanna, I so love. I wish I had written the book, but I'm glad it was written because that was the reminder. You're in an optical illusion. You can look for the bad or you can look for the good. Look for the good. The Magic Power of Emotional Appeal. How many have read that? This book is nearly impossible to find and incredibly expensive to buy. Why? Because of me. I have written about this book and talked about this book and put it up there on a pedestal for decades. You'll find mentions in my book, Hypnotic Writing, my book, Buying Trances. I forget all the different places where I talk about it because I thought this book was a turning point in the field of human psychology in understanding motivation. Roy Garn said there's only four motivators, only four. And you can go to marketing people and they're going to have a list of 30 and some scientists, psychologists will have a list of 20 or whatever. He said, no, there's only four. And I built a copywriting and marketing business on those four. Self-preservation, romance, money, and recognition. Those four. You can obviously break them down and say, well, romance is also love or sex, and you can break them into categories. But Roy Garn came up with these four categories, and his book is alive with electricity because his examples prove his points. So I strongly recommend, well, at least borrow the copy that's here because it'll be expensive to buy. I wanted to point out dollars and cents, which is really another phrase for P.T. Barnum's. It's another title for P.T. Barnum's autobiography. Why is this important? P.T. Barnum did something that will surprise you. He put his autobiography in the public domain while he was alive. That meant anybody could publish it without paying royalties, without anything going to P.T. Barnum. Why was this important to P.T. Barnum? Because a whole lot of people were publishing and promoting his name without him paying anything. No printing fees, no royalty fees, no nothing. No publicity, no advertising fees. The people who took his book and ran with it were glad to do so. And some of the the editions that came out, like Dollars and Cents, are more beautiful than the ones P.T. Barnum had come out with. He put his autobiography in the public domain. $100,000 in gold, 1875. I'm showing some of these books because I want to reiterate what Roy Garn had pointed out, that the same things that people wanted back then are the same things people want today. We only fulfill them differently. We have technology that gets it delivered differently. But their same desires are there. Same with imagination, mind's dominant power. That's 1925 or so, it looks like. All of these books were illustrating by Lesson 9, the human desires never change. We all want the same thing. And we did two centuries ago. Back in ancient Stoic times in Greece, all wanted the same thing. Oh, this is one of my favorite books of all time. Did you get to see it at the library? Did you get to hold it or anything? It is a huge, hefty, hand-bound, luxurious, impossibly priceless book. 
And I like talking about it because I don't know if you get to hear the whole story. The short version of the story is the people in the author's club in 1899 wanted to raise money for their mastermind that they were in. And they decided that one of them was a printer. Most of them were authors. They were going to write original stories, sign every one of them. They'd all be collected, 108 of them, I think. The printer would bind them all by hand and create the bindery. So each one was unique, and they'd sell it for $200 a copy. In 1893. Now, why is this really important? Besides, it illustrates that the group is more powerful than the individual mind. They did it as a group. The people in it, Theodore Roosevelt, Mark Twain. I mean, these, these were the legends, and they all signed it. Andrew Carnegie. One of the things I love about old books, and I'm going to say these side comments that I'm hoping they're planting seeds for you and gives you an understanding is my beautiful Lisa, who's sitting back there, is an artist. And so she's doing this beautiful artwork. And occasionally somebody will ask me, uh, why do you want to get a rare old book when you can get the digital version of it and just read it? And first of all, it makes no sense to me. <laughs> Unless you're on a plane, maybe, and you're on an iPad, and it's like, yeah, two hours, you're going to read it. But talk about flat. Talk about disconnected. And so the example came... Do you want to look at one of Lisa's prints? Or do you want to hold the original painting? Or jump to something that you all may know. Do you want to hold a Picasso photo of something he drew? Or do you want to actually hold the painting he held and painted? That's the difference with books. I told Russell that, I don't know that I ever told this anywhere else, when I was doing all my P.T. Barnum research and I ran into a lot of people who had collections and this, that, and the other, one guy had a book that was the diary of P.T. Barnum's daughter. And in the 1800s, one of the things they did was they'd take a locket of hair from the family member and stick it in the diary. So in P.T. Barnum's daughter's diary was a locket of his hair. And I petted it. <laughs> I still remember it and I wanted it because I thought I wonder with new science can we recreate him <laughs> can, do we, can we DNA and you know who, what magic we can do today I don't know but that brings all these books to life the reason I originally bought Liber Scriptorium is because I'm a big Mark Twain fan and I have a lot of Mark Twain stuff and when I realized he signed that and Carnegie signed it, and Teddy Roosevelt signed it. And then I started imagining, what was it like for them to be in a mastermind? Which is equivalent to what we are right here. These are the greatest minds. You are the success stories. You are helping to build a vision that is going to create a legacy that is going to influence lots of people. But when you're sitting here, you just feel like, I'm just hanging. I'm just whoever you are. You, know, you don't think anything important or lasting is taking place. Neither did Mark Twain or Teddy Roosevelt or any. There was 108 people in that mastermind. They just were going there to talk their business, talk about writing, talk about their books. And when they invent a time machine, I'm going back. I'm going there. And I'll buy one of those books for 200 bucks rather than for 20000 or whatever they went for. But the lesson there was the group is more powerful than the individual. And that's also saying, get out of your ego. This is another book, fairly modern, that influenced me a lot. Ask for the Moon and Get It. Anybody remember who Percy Ross was? He was a billionaire, and he ran a column where he invited people to send him letters asking for what they wanted, and if, they, if he liked what they said, he would grant it. He'd give them money, he'd buy them a home, he'd buy them a bike, he'd buy them a car, depending on what they asked. And he had a national syndicated column. I read this book, and I realized when somebody asks a question, they're very often revealing their hidden motives in the question. But you have to listen to the wording of how they used it, because they're not aware of it. They're just saying, give me money. And they don't realize how blunt and how disconnected and how selfish that is.
And that's a very weak example, but that book, Ask for the Moon and Get It, that taught me. People reveal their inner desires and their stated questions. I have a miracles coaching program, and every month I get on it and people ask questions. And because of Percy Ross, when I am listening to the questions, I always hear what they're secretly asking. It's like decoding the question. And when I decode it, I can give them a more useful answer at that point. That came from Percy Ross. Another one you probably never heard of, Fortunes for All, Vash Young. These, most of these people are long dead, but boy, it's so good that they left their books, they left their insights. Fortunes for All. This book was so powerful to me. He basically said, we can do this right now. It'll only take a minute. I'll just walk you through it mentally. He would have you do it in pencil and paper. Uh, say I'm already talking in his time period, pencil and paper. Uh, <clears throat> but what you would do is he would say, imagine everything that you want in your life. And you can do that right now. You don't have to tell anybody. You don't have to do anything. But imagine everything that you want in your life, all the things, the toys, the soulmate, the house, the wealth, the success of your business, your kids. Whatever's on the list is fine. It's your list. It's your private list. And add to it anything that you had forgotten. Add the, add the secret stuff. The stuff you don't want anybody to know that you really want, but you want it, write it down in your mind. And then Vash Young went on to say, note how you feel when you imagine all of that has come true. And just go to the next step and imagine it's all come into your life. How does it feel to have all these wants, wishes, goals, intentions now manifested? And then Vash Young went one step and said, how you're feeling right now is what you want all of that for. You can go ahead and feel fantastic right now. And I would add, he didn't say this, but I would add, by feeling the completion of what you already want, now your brain goes into work to manifest it for you. It's profound. Fortunes for all. It's how you use your mind. Another way of saying it, I said, is lesson 12 was serenity is now. All right, we have one more to go here, and I want to show you a few things. The lady persuaders pointed out to me that there were, there were women as copywriters and business people long before we started to think about them as being in business. This is not new. This has been around for a very long time. Confessions of a hoaxer. This is Alan Abel. I actually knew Alan Abel. I hired Alan Abel to pull hoaxes and publicity stunts for me. We don't have enough time here for me to go into all of those, so another time, another date, if you're interested, I'll tell you some of the amazing stories, including the great lotto hoax. Books like How to Get What You Want, another one, Standing the Test of Time, Orison Sweat Martin. I know that's in the library, Atlas Museum. <clears throat> this one is from 1914. This is from a colonel that was in the Civil War who wrote a self-help book. And one of the quotes he had in there is about, if your thought is fixed on faith in the greater meaning, you are invincible. Is that powerful or what? If it is fixed on fear or its elder child worry, you stand helpless, weak, conquered, and miserable. Is that powerful or what? That's 1914. <clears throat> there were a lot of books. Charles Austin Bates, he was writing in the 1800s. And I would study those books because they helped me understand advertising and how to be a copywriter. The book that influenced me the most when I was growing up was The Magic of Believing. There's a signed copy there. There's an LP copy there. There's a copy that was for teenagers. There's a copy with Liberace raving about it. That book single-handedly changed my life in the 1960s, early 1970s. And basically, he was saying, if you can believe it, you can actually achieve it. 
I mean, some of these catchphrases, like the famous Napoleon Hill one, which is one of my all-time favorite ones, you know, if the mind of man can conceive it and believe it, can't achieve it. They were said by other people. And I don't even see what that... Oh, man, the puppet. That helped me understand that there is a psychology to influence. And they were exploring it in the 1920s. And I wasn't going to talk about any of the more recognizable books. But I was talking to Russell yesterday, and it's like, this is hands down. I mean, read everything by Napoleon Hill. Also read How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's a masterpiece. It is a ticket to success. Some of it is so basic, like smile, use people's first name, be nice. <laughs> it's just amazing, amazing, these influences. So the ending lesson I have is that you want to continue reading because it saves you blood, sweat, and tears, is what I said earlier. And the quote I have is from Socrates. Employ your time in improving yourself by other men's writings so that you shall come easily by what others have labored hard for. Socrates, one of the best reasons ever to keep writing. And, of course, as I'm ending here, I want you to consider telling me what your favorite books are or the books that really changed you. My email is up there, mrfire at gmail.com. And then as I ad-lib my wrap-up, how many of you have read Outwitting the Devil? Yeah, I, I would say that is one of the most powerful books I have ever read. And when I first started reading it, I did not want to complete it because it made me uncomfortable. But as I was reading it, I was thinking of the devil as the pitchfork devil from religion. When I went back to the book and read more, I started to realize and got sweaty hands as I realized the devil was my own mind. Now, when I was getting ready to come out here, I was excited and I was nervous. I've never spoken at a Russell Brunson event. This is a big deal. I've spoken all over the world. <laughs> I've gone to places like uh, I was in Russia, and then I went to Ukraine, and then Russia bombed Ukraine, and I wondered, was it something I said? <laughs> and then I went to Iran, and when I left Iran, they were being bombed over there, and I wondered, I, I'm trying to give people good news here, but what is happening? And uh, so I'm kidding about all that, of course. I did go to those countries. And love going to those countries and love being with people who want to hear the message. But I've never spoken on this subject. I work night and day to make a slideshow for you and really handpick the 13 principles in the given time I had. But as I stood back there, I had to outwit the devil. The devil was creeping into my head, I and mean, it was uncomfortable. And so, again, we have to read this material and apply this material so that we can be present to deliver whatever our message is. So, again, I want to thank all of you for having me here, and I want to congratulate and thank my friend, my hero, my visionary, Mr. Russell Brunson. Thank you.